Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. All right, we are back to Making Media and the familiar voice that you know, Matt Russell, is back here with Dom Cook. Dom, I missed you, but I must say it was a pleasure listening to you. I welcomed my daughter into the world a couple weeks ago, and I was on the sidelines. I left it in your hands. True next man up mentality. You grab the bull by the horns, whatever cliche we want to use, and you just put a dominating performance on me. And I was really impressed, to be honest. I considered just not even coming back to the microphone. But here we are. I think pretty much by any measurement, you at least 10x our downloads from that episode you did last week with Neil from No Laying Up. So I just have to ask you, how does it feel to put that type of performance on in my absence and really shine when the spotlight was on you? It's huge. But before I acknowledge that, I want to say it's nice to have you back. I'm thrilled for you and your family, a new member of the family, and it's nice to be back to normal. In terms of the episode itself, I can't take any credit for it. All down to Neil. But yeah, it was huge. It was noted that you went around for it. And I will forever... I think I've got the chart printed off in several different formats. There'll be a few of those on different floors in my, my house. It was amazing to see, in all honesty... I guess, first of all, I've been listening to No Laying Up for a long time. So just talking to Neil is always a thrill. And he was extremely generous with this time. We recorded that episode on a Friday morning, his time, afternoon, my time. And he just said, hey, I've got the whole morning. We put in a 75-minute recording slot and he was like, I can go as long as you need me to go. (laughs) The only constraint here is that my dog might need a wee. But we never got to that point. We closed it up in about two hours and I got kind of everything I wanted to ask him. And it was genuine curiosity. All of those questions I asked was just things that I've listened to their show over the time and wanted to know the answers to as an avid consumer of their content. It was kind of funny as well, because when a little bit ahead of you guys, you're asleep when our content goes live um, at 4 a.m. Eastern time. And then I tweeted it at maybe 6.30 Eastern time on last Thursday. And for a good hour, I think I had three likes on my tweet. And I looked in our stats account and there was maybe, I don't know, there was a handful of people that I listened to this show and I was like, oh man, I really want to do Neil Justice here. But things are looking bleak 10 or 11 hours later. It was a very different picture. Yeah, no, it was an episode that I actually listened to once it was released. We do listen to the majority of our podcasts before they go out. We have a special private feed where all the good stuff comes in. But that was one where I got to listen like any other listener And I think my commentary about how unique it was because it really got into the operational side of things, which is really the painful stuff. The on-air stuff is the sexy, fun, exciting, everybody's happy. The operational stuff is the painful, 
necessary things, no matter how you try to outline it or simplify it and make it more of a process oriented thing, it just ends up getting bocked down. And it's like, how do you create things that keep you happy? And I think he really focused on that. It was very clear they want this to last for a long time and that they had to take necessary steps to do that. And I love getting into that side of the equation because I feel like that stuff is just not covered nearly as much as, oh, how do we grow this number or grow that number? It's like, how do you just make it sustainable? Because you could pull your hair out doing some of this stuff. So that was great. And then just to see, to your point, once they hit a few clicks, the response and the distribution power they had was absolutely insane. Yeah. Your first point goes to a couple of my concerns when I was recording and then after when I was listening back to the episode... One was that we had talked about some pretty weird stuff. I was unsure as whether anyone else cares. You know, the things that you and I think about on a daily basis because we're operating a somewhat similar business in terms of a podcasting enterprise. How many other people have these questions, these thoughts? And then two, was I too close to no laying up in terms of like asking softball questions or kind of teeing them up or being a bit sycophantic? No one wants to listen to an interview where someone's just fawning over the person they're interviewing. A lot of the thoughts that you have are shared by many other people in the world, particularly on the internet. You've got the power of the whole world at your fingertips. And in those two, three billion people online, there'll be a handful of people that resonate with what you're asking about. And yeah, as I said early on, it has nothing to do with me. Neil was very generous at the time and incredibly detailed in his insight. And like it just goes to show, he talked about how they often come up against challenges when they're interviewing people because you're never quite sure what the person's going to be like when they come on the show or how much they're going to give away. He was kind of a shining example of a very, very good guest. But as you say, the distribution, Solly, on the No Laying Up Twitter account has 400 and something thousand followers. Neil's got 40 or 55, I think, thousand. And it's not really those numbers that make me really impressed. It's the quality of their following. We've had people with much bigger audiences on our show. Prime example would be Adi Ignatius from the Harvard Business Review, their Twitter account has 6 million followers. Their LinkedIn account has got 12, 13 million followers. We didn't really see a blip in terms of like up or down trajectory on that episode's performance. Whereas this, on a much smaller scale, kind of a tenth of the scale, had, as you say, 10 times impact on any other episode that we've released. So it's kind of really shows. And this is going to an early guest of ours, Sean Griffey's point of not all audiences are equal. And it's like, who is in your audience rather than how big is your audience? Obviously, they have a very sizable audience, don't get me wrong. Their audience and their followership is just voracious for any of their content and like obviously wanted to get under the hood and Neil delivered. Yeah, they have a community. It's maybe an overused term, but I think it applies pretty well here. And I think a lot of the lessons that can be taken away is like how they've fostered that community, leaned into it, understood how many people like wanted to gather and cheer on their mission. And then they follow them in a lot of ways. And then yeah, Neil, it was an opportunity to shine and show how much they actually do think about this stuff behind the scenes, which is always nice. I think that seems to be coming out of most of the episodes in a good way, which is, I think a lot of people in the content sphere, you could be thrown into this bucket of being a talking head, when in reality, you're thinking a lot about the stuff behind the scenes and the business and operational strategy. And honestly, I think actually this came out with David Senra on, on the My First Million podcast. I think it was probably his best appearance just in terms of showing his business acumen, which he's picking up from reading all these books. And it's something that when I talk to him clearly comes across that he's not just reading this and regurgitating it. He's actually applying it in terms of his own business. And that can get lost. So giving people an opportunity to showcase some of that stuff and then picking off some of the lessons that you can learn from them. 
100%. Even the fact that they've got a very clear set of values and a mission that they go over every single year with a fine tooth comb. If you listen to the show and you think, oh, they're just a group of friends talking about a sport that they really enjoy. A lot of this stuff is really, really well thought through, very detailed, even to the extent of like, what are we going to discuss in each episode? And that's something that really stuck with me and just like the power of constraints through their business and like really honing in on this is who we're serving. This is how we're going to do it. But all of those little things add up into an exceptional product, which brings me also to a question we get a lot. And this is about growing podcasts. Obviously, we've just discussed a very good organic way to grow a podcast by bringing someone interesting on who has a nice audience. On the flip side of that is paid growth and advertising. We've talked about this a lot on our show. I have some inside baseball that you've been running an experiment on our show. So I'm curious to find out how that's been going. Yeah, I let the CJs establish themselves over the first six weeks. So they are there. There's that core group. They know the originals and will continue to gain non-paid listeners over time. But I did want to run the experiment. This show is all about experimentation in the media sphere. And the easiest place to do that is in Overcast. So if by chance you're listening to this and don't know the Overcast app, it was truly built for listening to podcasts. It's like a real listener-centric podcast application. And they have a very easy ad buying model where you can see what their estimates are in terms of what you'll pay for the subscriber, but then you actually run it. So at this point, we've basically spent $11.50 per subscriber, which isn't that bad. It runs basically in the math that they estimated slightly better. I think my ad copy really was crushing it. So I might have a future in that if this whole Colossus thing doesn't work out. But I guess where I'm left like, huh, is I have absolutely no data on who the subscriber is. I have no information on whether they just subscribe once and then leave. I have no idea if it's just a bunch of overcast. Well, I guess there's only one overcast employee, but like a friend of overcast who's running through all the ads and clicking subscribe and just so that it registers in the system. Like there's a lack of follow through and information on it. And none of that really matters because I think a lot of the advertising and sponsorship world is fairly opaque. There's not a lot of transparency and you can't expect to have that true where they came into the funnel and how they converted and exactly what they would attribute it to. But... I think I'm waiting for someone to speak up about, oh, I found this via (laughs) this Overcast ad. At least having some connectivity to it. And I've yet to see it. There's no anecdotes out there. No. And it would be nice to have that. But it's fine. I think paid growth in some cases makes sense. But when you have something that's so niche in early days and specific to what we're doing, it doesn't feel like a very obvious strategy to me. And yes, you can ARB pay this for a subscriber and I can monetize this in terms of the ad market, but that's not really how our model works. So I don't know. I've walked away feeling like, okay, now I know what this data shows me. I think it makes sense for smaller shows. Once you get to a bigger show, you don't really move the needle with these types of numbers. I mean, we're talking about basically like a little under 100 subscribers. So it's not really substantial and that's not going to move the needle for a lot of bigger shows. But nonetheless, now we have some information and yeah, we'll see where we take it from here. So what are the mechanics? You spend a certain amount of money. Do you know, like, is this just based off people that have listened to a minute of our show? What are the parameters to say that we've got a subscriber? So you go into Overcast and they basically have a dashboard that shows you all the different categories of advertisements. So you could be advertising in the arts category or the business category or in health and fitness. And what they'll tell you is you get this for 30 days. 
So like your ad is placed here for 30 days and they have a certain amount of slots and those slots sell out. So like right now, business is sold out, but arts is available and I can pay $210 for a month worth of my ad showing up in any arts podcast that somebody's listening to. And you'll see it if you pull up Overcast, you'll see just like a little pop up and it is basically an advertisement for another podcast. And what they estimate is how many taps you'll get on that advertisement. And that just means somebody's just clicking it to see more. And then how many subscriptions. So they tap and then they subscribe. Basically, what you want is subscriptions and they estimate the performance. So you know what you're getting in terms of cost per tap and then cost per subscription. And ours outperformed slightly. You have certain categories which are substantially more expensive. So like business is $775 and you're basically expecting to pay $20 per subscriber versus in the arts, it's like $7 per subscriber. So there is a little bit of the Sean Griffey, not every listener is created equal and thinking about the audience, which plays into it. So that's pretty interesting. It's a very easy dashboard to use, almost a little bit too easy to use. And the data that they give out is great for somebody who wants to put it in a PowerPoint presentation. (laughs) There's some cynicism in me just because if you fast forwarded a year later and there was like this big article about, oh, overcast ads were nonsense. Like I have no proof, you know, like (laughs) my, my real information is very limited here. I feel good about the scientific method that we're running on making media. We've talked to a few people. They said paid growth doesn't work for podcasts. We went out into the field. We tested it. We put the hypothesis to work. Obviously, it works to some extent, but we don't know. And so I'm not sure we'll be spending too many more dollars in this channel. Would you agree? I would agree. I think just in the advertising camp, the other interesting thing that came up in one of our conversations with Hitin Samtani from The Real Deal was that they were ranked as the wealthiest audience in terms of all websites by Quantcast. So immediately before he even finished making the comment, (laughs) I said, we need to have Quantcast tied into our website. Sure enough, we've did. And just want to let you know, as of now, our audience measures as wealthier. We index higher. Hits and we're coming for you. (laughs) Yes, by like a solid 500 basis points. Now that survey was run a few years ago. So maybe they've increased that number. But really interesting stuff. And we are smaller. So in terms of the audience size, maybe that would hurt us in the rankings. But super, super interesting stuff. And all these tools that you can use to measure and track, that's just related to our website. It doesn't tie into our podcast. But it's pretty interesting to see what's out there. And I think that's been something I've learned a lot from the podcast is people recommending things in terms of tools that we can use, not just for our own advertising, but also for bringing in advertisers. So we can say, as of now, Colossus has the wealthiest audience in the web. Yes, that's what I've started to say. You just need a little footnote. And then you know, in the footnote, you describe how it is. But it's basically exactly how the investment banking league tables work and why every single bank can be the number one in the IPO league tables each year. Just all about the fine print. I hope our listeners feel good about that. You are the wealthiest audience on the web. Congratulations. We owe it to you. If you visit the website. If you visit the website, yeah. That Venn diagram is a strong overlap as far as I'm concerned. Oh, uh, yes. That's on the advertising side of things. going to run through a few of these questions that we get over and over again. And, and what we're basically going to do is keep compiling these. The method that I've been using is either we get the question more than once, or it's a really interesting question that I'm curious about Dom's answer to, but hopefully these are helpful. We seem to find these are quite helpful for people in the podcast world or people 
in a media seat within an organization. So the feedback's been good on that. And again, just keep firing these questions away. We'll always answer them via DM. If you want us to attribute anything, we can always attribute it to you. But we figure being anonymous is better in most of these situations, but you let us know. So the next one, which I thought was a pretty interesting question that came in, and it's a form of what have we learned from the podcast, but the person asked, is there anything we're going to stop doing as a result of something that a podcast guest has said on our show? So I read this question that you'd written, and I was struggling with things that we're going to stop doing. But I have a lot of things that they've taught me that we should do or change the way we do things. Is that a fair answer to the question, if I answer it that way? I mean, it's not really answering the question, but I'm happy to hear those. Yeah, sure. I want to answer my question, not yours. And I've got a list. So I'm going to go down the list. You can stop me when it gets boring. All right. Keep going. So you spoke to Spike early in Making Media's life, Spike Eskin. And he talked a lot about how you need confrontation and disagreement when you've got a show like ours, where it has multiple people in, similar to No Laying Up. That's what keeps people listening. You need a point of disagreement. You need something that people can hang their hat on. They can be on someone's side in the argument, because if everyone's agreeing all the time, then that's just not very interesting. And it's not real life either. So that was from Spike. I got that from Eric Newsom. Who's well, a wait, wait, wait. Just on that point, do you think that somebody who doesn't answer the actual questions would qualify in that category. Like there's one guy who answers the questions and then there's one guy who just makes up whatever question he wants to answer and then answers them. That's how I interpreted Spike's advice. So that's why you got. Yeah. We're in agreement there though. No disagreement. (laughs) Eric Newsom, podcasting guru. When I think about his conversation, like you need to be more focused than you think. Niche down, I guess, is his mantra when it comes to me. And I don't think we've done a very good job of that in our podcast. I think we're probably still maybe a little bit too broad in the media ecosystem. We just talked nice to great media operators. Maybe we should be more specific. So when you come to making media, you know exactly what you're getting. But we can always get better at that. Doug Jimiro, the YouTube king, get off the algorithm. Whatever algorithm you're on, just get off it. Go build something somewhere else that you can own. Neil talked a lot about that in terms of the website being a key piece for them, trying to build that up because obviously Twitter's been great for them, but it's an algorithm. Ardy Ignatius of Harvard Business Review. So there's a lot to learn from that business and we've covered it quite extensively. However, the thing that really like sticks in my head from his conversation was him talking about their Ascend brand on TikTok. And he was like, it's not a very Harvard Business Review brand. It's got a completely different feel to it. And I've always been really concerned about trying different mediums or platforms because like that's not really Colossus's style. But this really made me rethink that. Like you have to fit your content to the medium. Otherwise the algorithm or however that platform works just won't work. This is a really interesting thing to me because my takeaway from that is that that is actually what's killed a lot of media businesses is by changing your content to whatever platform you're on, you're just supporting that platform. It's not Harvard Business Review style. It is TikTok style now. Therefore, TikTok is gaining more and more value because you are just adjusting to them. And listen, Harvard Business Review is not the right model to use in terms of deflating value, but what I would say is, I don't know that they're necessarily gaining a ton of value. And I don't know what the ROI is on that. But I think if you just look around and how many businesses have just been absolutely killed. I mean, we see it with BuzzFeed and Vice and all these media brands that adjusted their content to fit on certain platforms. And where are they now? It's something that I will like put my heels in the sand, dig them deeper, deeper, deeper. I think there's a lot of short-term, oh, let me adjust to just get this focus. And you're going to have a million people tell you why that makes all the sense in the world, because those platforms are literally just creating that mindset. 
I am not sure that a ton of the value is actually accruing back to these brands. Now, I think if you could find the right way to get at least enough of that value out of it, that's great. But I think many brands are better served to not even not even bother with it. Yeah, you have to be really intentional about what that's doing for you. It's not just growing an audience for an audience's sake on a platform because there are, like, as you say, a ton of ways that goes wrong. But if you're using something like Twitter, for example, to drive people either to your podcast or to your website or whatever, and like you know there's a very specific action that you're trying to do there, and obviously then I think you kind of need to tailor what you're doing to that particular medium, or you just find the medium that works for you. Like There are a ton of social apps out there. There are video ones, there are text ones, there are audio ones find what works for your content and really kind of drive growth there into however your business actually works. That's kind of how I interpreted it. There was nuance to what Addy said too. Isn't it a separate brand under the Harvard umbrella? Yeah. Ascend. Yeah. 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 So that to me actually matters as well. It's creating subcategories which might fit better within that particular niche. Again, I think all that stuff's pretty important and probably glossed over. And I definitely fall on one side of the coin. Yeah, they were trying to attract younger people, weren't they? So it's more just about like career advice and stuff like that rather than HBR, which typically serves managers at the corporate level. Yeah. So I've got two more. Nathan Barry, be more intentional about everything. He talked about his podcast is solely there to meet people in his field. And I think that's kind of been a big key learning from us with this show. One of the real pieces of value, which I didn't foresee was just talking to people in the media landscape and building a connection with them through a podcast conversation then like emailing before and after. It's one of those classic things that, you know, when you're in a crisis, if you've spoken to someone once before, it's much easier to ring them up and say, hey, I think you might have been through something similar. Would you mind helping us out? You have the connection rather than going in cold and say, hey, I'm done, my work at Colossus, et cetera, et cetera. You break the wall down initially and then you have one foot in the door with a ton of these very interesting people. And then Simon Owens said, a subscription has to be a very different product. You can't just create more of something and expect people to pay for it. And I think that we've talked about subscriptions on this show and with our business a lot. I think that just resonates. That's where you stop at the Simon episode. Seems like you just wrote down one lesson from every episode and then you just stopped at Simon. I didn't want to go through the whole list. I mean, that was like 15 things. People got to do their own work. And I thought maybe at some point you might answer some of this question too. I chimed in. I think the main lesson or takeaway or adjustment in terms of my actions from what a guest has said and specifically answering the question of what will you not do? I think what I won't do is basically just take these Hail Mary shots in launching things in specific industries where there's really no insight as to whether there's the right audience in that industry that can serve us from a business perspective. And that's the Sean Griffey style of working backwards and really finding industries where there's a high amount of CapEx spend and targeting those and being pretty thoughtful about launching in those markets. I think that to me was the thing that stuck the most and probably was most applicable. Now, that still means you can do a lot of experimental stuff. But I think it's like thinking about it from capital allocation standpoint, the capital being time and energy. You want to find ways that you could try those experiments with limited time and limited energy relative to those where you have much better visibility in terms of what the end market looks like. And that's the one that probably stood out the most to me just in terms of actually changing behavior. I agree. There's a ton of stuff where it's like reaffirmed behavior or maybe adjusted how I might do something. Nathan's a good example. Just being much more process-oriented in terms of exactly what the process is on the back end once we do something, once we release something, once we follow up with something. And just having like a core set of principles that I'm going to follow personally in terms of some of those things, or principles, not even the right word. 
actions. That's something that's definitely something that stuck with me, but doesn't really answer the question because that's something I'm not necessarily not doing anymore. It's just I'm going to do more of. Well, your answer to the question of what we're going to stop doing links with a nice listener question that we got about what the process is for adding new shows. And I'd say last year, we added a number of new shows. And this year, we're thinking about things slightly differently. And maybe this is exactly to your point of kind of what you've learned from this show about being very specific about why we would launch something new. So A, are we planning to add any more shows in terms of podcasts? And B, what would the process look like, both the decision-making and the execution? Yeah, I think we're always opportunistically looking. We're keeping our ears out there. When we find people that are interesting, we look to see if there's ways that we can align ourselves with them. And there's a variety of different ways that they come into the organization. I think most commonly, like Patrick's constantly out there looking at other podcasters. And given his what his support can do for a podcaster, I think to me, just business sense-wise, it's always pretty interesting to pursue those. He can have such a massive impact on the outcome of things. That's just like one element. We are definitely always looking and being opportunistic. We also field a lot of ideas and we try to craft ideas. We do have some things in the works, some of which will come later this year, back half of the year, and we'll have a more formal announcement around that. And then we're just looking for other ways that we can do like partnership structures. We're very aware of what our audience likes. And like again, we've said this a few times, making media probably falls most outside of what our traditional listenership base is. But we don't want to go too far away. And there might be categories that aren't in the business and investing sphere that we think are interesting, we can learn a ton from, but maybe don't fit the Colossus brand. So it's like, okay, how do we get creative with other structures and partnership ideas that we might have? And that's where the investing background comes in handy and you can find creative ways to do that. So working on something in that world as well. And stay tuned for that. And there might be some announcements to come in the coming months. So yeah, that's a long way of answering. There's a few different ways to come in. I think just putting out great product and great content is the foolproof plan. And the way that these end up taking form is dependent on how well it fits our platform and how much interest there is in terms of working together. Has this doing this show and a few of the other ones we launched last year changed your mind on what success for a podcast that we launch might look like, how you might measure that and how long you would give it before saying, is this working or not? So I think there are two forms of success when it comes to podcasting. There's the personal success for the hosts involved. And then there is the business success for Colossus. I think that in terms of business success, given that we, you and I, are full-time parts of this business, there's a little bit of a blend there. There's an overlap in terms of how beneficial this is to us personally and how beneficial it is to the business. But I think that you can be doing a podcast with incredibly small numbers, making absolutely no money, and it could be the most valuable thing that you could be doing. I think it's massively exceeded my expectations in terms of the personal value that I get, the enjoyment that comes out of this, the people that I meet. And there's something... That's really there. Now, from a business perspective, I think it's helped out a lot too. And it's helped out with our other shows. There's sponsorship things that have come up and there's new ideas that have come out of it. But I think if we weren't full-time, it might look a little bit different. And I think that's where the differentiation comes in between those two things. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, yeah. The question came up as well in my mind as you were saying that. Do you think this show would look different if we were full-time on making media? This was our sole focus. Yes, because I think because we're full-time in the business of Colossus... Yeah, it's just a natural extension. Yeah, it's this natural extension of it. 
it takes the backseat to a lot of other things that we do. So I think, yes, could we lean into certain things a little bit more? Probably. And would it look differently? It might have a bigger audience, but I don't know that the quality or the people that were really engaged with it would change all that much. What do you think? No, I think that's right. I think like it would lose most of its purpose if we were doing this full time, because like at the moment, it's kind of our way of finding interesting people and learning from them and learning lessons that we can apply directly into our business the next day or that afternoon after we've had a conversation with them. All the other benefits kind of ancillary. And if we can help people along our journey as well, then like amazing. And that's exactly what this is about. Yeah. I mean, it, just the amount of people that will single out things that are useful to them and then start up a conversation and then they add value for me. It's just insane how much benefit there is both personally, and then that's an extension. It helps out the business as well. It's definitely there. This was something that's come up in a few different forms, which is basically, what do we listen to outside of Colossus? Which I think we've shared a little bit about. Some people have asked like, if there's shows that we listen to, to try to learn from, to then incorporate into our own show, or if there's categories of shows where we think there's a lot to be taken away. So... I leave you with a very open-ended what you listen to outside of Colossus. This is a tough one for me to answer because the short and satisfying answer is there isn't a ton of things that I listen to religiously outside of our content, mostly because I listen to our content day in, day out. I often listen to conversations more than once. I feel a little bit of fatigue at the end of the day or in the middle of the day and going on a walk and thinking, oh, what should I listen to? A podcast. That being said, no laying up. Genuinely, I'm a very religious listener of that show and all the different guises that that comes in. There are a number of others that I don't listen to weekly, but I would dip in and out of depending on who they've got on or what they're discussing. And I can go through those in a second. But to answer the question that you asked a bit more directly, one person, and this might get me in trouble, that I listen to, that I genuinely learn a ton from every time I listen to her talk is Alex Cooper on Call Her Daddy. I think she does the most incredible job of connecting with her audience I think every podcaster in the world could learn a lot from because she's just built this affinity with the people that listen to her show that I think is probably stronger than most other shows in the world. And I know there's probably tons of people out there thinking, oh my goodness, what's he done? But I generally believe that I will happily stand by her show as being an amazing teacher for other podcasters out there. I'm with you. Honestly, there's a whole category of people that don't get nearly the respect that they should. And it's because they do it a different way than most people are willing to do it. And... I would put her in that category beyond that. She's just really insanely talented and it's impressive what she's built. It's impressive how she's done it. It's impressive the range of people that she has on that show too. It's not like one specific category. So there's been an evolution there. That's been really impressive. I don't know why it triggered this thought in my head, but one of my like litmus tests in terms of seeing how people react is like, I think one of the most fascinating entrepreneurs in the world is Chris Jenner mama bear of Kardashians and Jenners around. And that woman has created so much value. And she's such a sharp business mind, doesn't get nearly enough profiles, following. And there's all this feeling about, oh, it's like poison for your brain or like people being famous for the sake of being famous. If you go back over time, it's the way the world works. And I think if people really dig into some other stuff that they watch or some other stuff that they consume, there's not too many differences, to be perfectly honest. Where can you pick up lessons and take things away? And maybe you're not willing to go and do it the same way that they did it. But you can definitely take away small lessons and learnings to answer the question. That's what I always or have definitely recently been trying to do is like, 
expand outside of the traditional like business and investing sphere. I've always had sports podcasts in my rotation playlist. Yeah. And rotation just as a disconnect because this stuff can get particularly dense and it can be overblowing your brain sometimes. And sometimes I need to disconnect. But where I probably started to look most otherwise is in like the entertainment space. So particularly around movies. And I've often referenced the big picture. I just think the way that they built that into something that's a really interesting form of content, that's been great. Brian Curtis does the press box and they have done some excellent stuff. They cover the media industry, but then he has some excellent formats and he's been great. And then something as weird as this podcast called the Blank Check Podcast, which is like very obscure. It's out there. It was a very specific niche podcast about movies that's evolved and they have really long episodes, but fun, creative formats. They do interesting things with how they bring their guests on. And that's really what I'm trying to find is like, there's so much of this stuff. How do you differentiate yourself? And how do you do it in a non-obvious way? So something I talked about is like, this is not a phrase that's coined anywhere, but it's like big names in different frames. It's like, how do you bring on guests and get them to talk about something that they don't normally talk about? You can learn just as much from these people when they're talking about something that is not their like core competency. So like Rory McElroy talking about succession instead of talking about golf. I bet there's a lot of really interesting things that come out of it. It's why I enjoyed the whiplash rewatchables with Bill Simmons and Sean Fennessy, because you basically the last half hour was basically like a real insight into their psychology of building the ringer. And there's a few different ways that this can be done. Like the most extreme is the guy who feeds like the hot sauce while they're doing the interviews. And it's just like, okay, how do you put a guest in a different type of environment, a different situation? And you could take so many interesting things away. So that's one piece of my answer. The other piece of my answer is I go down rabbit holes for specific people. If I want to learn about specific people, then I will find any podcast interview they've done. So I do this with some of our guests. But then there's people outside of this. Like there's this fascinating guy, Matt Jacobson, who was employee, I don't know, number like first 10 maybe or first 50 at Facebook. And he was an older guy. He was like 40 years old, but was a really, really early employee there. And he's just a really, really interesting person. I think he's still there as of now, has done a lot of their partnerships, has been in that like Hollywood world for an extended period of time, but lives an interesting life, kind of has interesting mantras. And you can pick up both personal things, but also professional things from him. I went on a deep dive with him. And then I found certain podcasts that I actually found particularly enjoyable. And I liked the hosts so that I listened to more of them. So that's been another strategy that I've had in terms of finding other shows or finding other formats. That's an excellent answer. A few ones in there that I haven't heard from that I'll definitely be following up. The press box was on my list and their one perfect story that they had done a couple of those where they've gone into talking to people who written this incredible article about either Michael Jordan or Lindsay Lohan in their cases and kind of really go through all the details. And that's just fascinating to follow along and keen for us to replicate that in some manner. Another few other ones that people are interested. The High Performance Podcast is a British podcast that talks to sports people and it's generally pretty good. If you find someone on there that you're really keen to learn from, Decoder with Neelay Patel, I find particularly interesting from our perspective in the media world. And then all your usuals. Audiobooks, I think, fill my time of listening to stuff as well. Audiobooks were a big kick for me on the paternity downtime because I was up at all hours of the night and still on a sci-fi kick, which is... Not what I expected to be doing, but yeah, just on that kick, my main takeaway is like in all these dystopian end of the world novels, 
people run out of electricity. I'm just wondering where all like the solar generators are, because that seems like to be a solution to me. So I was digging into a little bit of that. And with audiobooks, there's this interesting thing where the narrators are so, so, so important. I often listen just based on who the narrator is. We have an interesting guest coming up that talks a little bit about the power of voice and these different things. And it made me think a lot about that. But that's just been like something noticeable to me. And it just has me thinking a lot about what goes into the good audio and good storytelling and all this stuff. And sometimes it's just the person, how they're expressing it and with what type of vocal quality they have that's noticeable to me. Audiobooks are good, but there is so much meat left on that bone. I think in general, they're really bad. I often listen to an audiobook. And as you say, you kind of have to pick and choose based on who's reading it, which makes no sense whatsoever. And often like you listen to it, you kind of enjoy it, but it's really hard to tell a week after listening like what actually happened or what you learned from that particular thing. And I think because the person's just droning on, just reading a book, there is a room there. I don't know whether it's AI or just someone exceptional at reading that can really bring a story to life or whether you have different voices. There's something there that has to be capture your imagination a bit more than how they currently do it. Well, I think you're probably not reading or listening to what I'm listening to because what I'm talking about, it is either people where you have different voices come in for different parts of the read or they're bringing music into this a little bit as well, just subtly alter changes and do different things. And then you have some of these narrators who can change their voice in specific ways. And it's absolutely excellent. Ray Porter is the OG, I guess, of this, the best of the best in that field. And he's unbelievable in terms of what he can do. Yeah, I need to find those. I'm listening to Cable Cowboy at the moment. And that audiobook is politely not very good. (laughs) That's a book that I'm going to say felt a little overrated to me. I don't know. Was so loved, such high expectations. He's dropping a bomb at the end of this episode. Well, here's my thing with John Malone. A lot of people love John Malone. They, you know, like bow their heads to John Malone. John Malone got John Malone rich. And maybe... (laughs) You benefited along the way. But John Malone looked out for John Malone. But let's be very honest. He did very well for himself. He made it insanely complex. You have to worry about the brain damage that's associated with it. And there's different ways to do different things. That man, he chose the hard way with a lot of things. He made a lot of enemies. If you ask my father about John Malone, not the biggest John Malone guy. (laughs) So I was really hyped up to listen to it. And I was just like, I don't know. Yeah. And it wasn't great customer service along the way for the people that um, he, he was taking money from too. Yeah. Excellent. That was my full list. Anything else you had to hit on? No. Pleasure to have you back. As you say, there'll be, I think maybe tomorrow, there'll be an episode all about speaking and listening, which I promise you is more interesting than that might sound. Yes, indeed. Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure and back in the saddle. And we got a lot more fun to come in the coming weeks. Thank you as always. Thank you.